Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have now reached 30,000 feet. You may now use all your electronic devices and your laptop. As we are in this series, uh, Altitude Adjustment, recognizing that our attitude affects our altitude, and I want to say uh, welcome to all of you that are back with us online. Uh, we're glad to have you guys with us as well. Normally, as we go through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we would uh, go verse by verse, and the next set of verses uh, would be where we are at. Uh, however... Uh, those verses, those, uh, that portion of Scripture deals with lust, adultery, uh, divorce, remarriage, all of those things. Uh, and there's really uh, a lot in there that has a certain amount of frankness and, in, uh, and if I'm being honest, really has to be addressed uh, with a level of intensity uh, that I didn't really want to ambush you as parents. And, and I recognize in this service we have... Uh, Lifehouse kids, and so our kids mostly are down the hallway, but for those of you watching online uh, that might have your kids there with you, uh, I didn't want to ambush you with this mess, uh, with a message on lust and adultery and, uh, and all of those things. So instead, we're going to skip past that, and then we're going to come back to that portion of Scripture next week. You've now been fairly warned. Uh, I would say that uh, it's probably going to be rated ab about PG-13. It's going to be appropriate, of course, and biblical. Uh, but we're really going to address the biblical sexual ethic uh, uh, that the Bible speaks about. And, and to be honest, the world is speaking about sex and sexuality and, uh, and all of this stuff. And, and it seems like everyone else is talking about it except for the church. Uh, and the truth is, is that we should be the prophetic word into the world, uh, and instead, sometimes we think it's taboo and we don't address those subjects, and, uh, and so we are going to next week. Uh, it was also um, appropriately convenient that my parents will not be here next week. So, <laughs> this morning's uh, text isn't any less important, in fact, it actually naturally connects to last week's message on anger. And this is one of the passages of Scripture that really isn't all that difficult for us to understand, uh, but it might be one of the most difficult for us to actually live out in our life. Uh, it, it really is one that, um, that as we are hearing it, as we are receiving the message today, uh, it will be easy for us to say, well, I, I, that's just too much. I can't do it. And so I want us to just, I, I don't have a ton of time because of the amount of content that we're going to get through today. But I do want us to not miss out on what God wants to speak to us. So can we just take a second and, and pray and ask that the Lord would really begin to uh, speak to us this morning. Lord, we... We long to not just hear the words, uh, but that we would be people who would walk in obedience to them. Because we know and we recognize that, that this message, this Sermon on the Mount, is really the foundation 
by which you have called us to live in this world as salt and light. God, I pray that you would move us, that you would convict us, but that ultimately you would lead us to a place of righteousness for our joy and for us to begin living that out in our everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year is 525 B.C., and King Cambyses II, it's the second, not the first. I know you guys were thinking I was going to talk about the first, but it's King Cambyses II of Persia. He's marching an army, a Persian army, towards Egypt, and he knew something interesting about the Egyptian people, that the Egyptian people had a god uh, that was in the form of a cat, and he knew that it was capital punishment for uh, Egyptians to kill cats. And so the Persian army carved into their shields an outline of a cat. And they brought with them, as they go into the battlefield, hundreds and hundreds of cats. It was fascinating. As they go into battlefield, they're throwing cats on the Egyptians in their face. And what's fascinating is the Persians won this battle hands down without much of a fight at all. Because the Egyptians were so nervous about hurting the cats. And afterwards, to scorn and shame the Egyptians, they would, they would take the cats and they would rub them in the dead faces of the Egyptians. It's weird, right? I mean, I know some of you, and I have to be careful because I got a bunch of hate mail uh, from first service. Some of you love cats. Uh, and, and that's okay, but there's some of you have always wondered what good a cat is, and now you know it's good enough to win a battle. Could you imagine the strategy session that took place when a group of really military-minded people are all sitting in the room? I'm guessing there was a little bit of alcohol involved in this planning session where they're thinking, I know, let's take cats. It's crazy. It's hard for us to understand that this would really be a strategic battle plan to win a war. And yet I don't think it's the strangest strategy that's ever been enacted to fight war. In fact, I actually think as followers of Jesus, we have a stranger strategy. I think we have a more ridiculous tactic, at least as far as the world is concerned. Could you imagine early followers of Christ in the midst of a Roman Empire? This Roman Empire that where they had friends who were being crucified on Roman crosses and burned at the stake and, uh, and just enemies of the state, people in the Romans' eyes who's, who weren't even worth the ground that they were standing on. Could you imagine the followers of Jesus gathered into a room talking and saying, how are we going to defeat the Roman Empire? Maybe if we just, you know, get enough uh, people on our side and we could, you know, pass some laws and we could vote them out? Or what if we just got a big enough army that could overtake the Roman army? Like, how are we going to be a people who come out the other end of this victorious? Maybe, maybe at the end of that, there's a, an apostle or a disciple who raises his hand and says, you know what? The Jesus way isn't the way of a bigger or better army. It's not the way of a, a better strategy even. It's not the way of, of the majority getting their way and imposing it on us. The Jesus way is actually more ridiculous than throwing a bunch of cats at Egyptians. What if we loved 
our enemies. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 48 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen and on your screens. But let's just jump right in. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't you love how that ends? Just setting the bar pretty low. Perfection. You know, hey, uh, I got a list of things that I want you to do, and by the way, you need to be perfect in it. See, most people, when, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, they have this line of thinking that says, this is too high of a bar. Like, surely what Jesus is saying is this is going to be so difficult that you're not going to be able to do it, and you're going to be expected to read this and know that you're going to fail and therefore have to press into God's grace. I, I would argue Yes, we are going to have to press into God's grace. However, what Jesus is asking of his disciples and speaking into their life is not something that's this, this far-reaching thing. He's actually saying, I want you to live this out. And he would say to us as disciples that as we live in this life, in the, in the kingdom of this world, that we are to bring the kingdom of God into this world, and we too are to live this out. But we've got to surrender some of our rights in order to enter into the kingdom. This is hard for us, isn't it? It's difficult. I think it would be disingenuous to say, you know what, this isn't that big of a deal. I got this figured out. When in reality, when somebody says you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that's a difficult thing. That's hard. And yet our attitude and our actions are radically transformed because of a life that is lived out in the ways of Jesus. And when our attitude is adjusted, our altitude, it begins to climb. You could say it this way, that our allegiance to Jesus, our loyalty to Jesus, transforms both our attitude and our actions in this world toward people. And what Jesus is going to gently press on us today, and hear this, Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's not looking for people who just agree with his teaching. People who have all of the information and intellectually say, I get it, yeah, that makes sense. His teaching isn't all that difficult to understand here. And we're going to talk about some of the pieces of it and, and how it's kind of nuanced and contextualized into their time. But, but the reality is, is Jesus is looking for people who will live this out in the world that we're a part of. It's easier understood here than it's actually lived out. 
Martin Luther King Jr., who lived this teaching out maybe better than anybody in the modern world, said it like this. He says, one of the greatest tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between profession and practice, between saying something and actually doing it. So the question in front of us today is, will we, treat, uh, will we not just treat Jesus as our Savior, which he is, but will he, we allow him to teach us today? Will he be our, our rabbi today? If you are a follower of Jesus, this message is for you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you get off the hook a little bit today. You get to kind of window shop and look in on some of the very difficult things that Christ followers are really asked to live out. And maybe you've experienced Christ followers who, who have not lived this out. And that's part of the reason why you don't even know if you want to be a part of this thing. Or maybe you know some people who have actually begun to live this out. And that's why you're saying, maybe there's something to this Jesus thing. Jesus wants to teach us how to live in his ways with his heart. So let me just start by saying a few things that Jesus isn't saying in this context. Okay, so Jesus is not saying uh, that you have to be a doormat. In fact, he's actually saying the opposite, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Jesus isn't saying that if you're in an abusive relationship or an abusive home or you're in an abusive situation that you've just got to continue to take it. That is not what Jesus is saying. And yet some Christians, Christians will use this kind of scripture to keep people in harm's way. And I would say that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's also not saying that you must be a political political pacifists, right? And, and if you're going to live out this passage that somehow you don't get involved with politics, I think just the opposite of that. Now, there is a large group of Christians who believe that, that because of this passage of Scripture, we should remove ourselves from any of the political ongoings of this world. And, and I just disagree with that. Now, uh, that's my opinion. You have to find your opinion on that. You need to research the Scripture yourself and wrestle with it and see what it says in that regard. But, but I think as Christ followers, we have an obligation to engage into changing the world for the kingdom of God. Now, the passage of Scripture is not saying that we do not combat or resist evil. The church is actually called to be the prophetic voice in our world. That when, something, when there is something that's going on of an injustice or there's something that's going on that is wrong or dehumanizing people, the, the church of God should prophetically speak to those things. That we as a, a church have the scriptures to be able to call those things out. We're not called to be passive observers of reality. But instead, we are actually called to be active participants in the renewal of this world into the kingdom of God. So now that we know that we know what he's not saying, let's think about and look at what he is saying. He's not saying all of those things. What Jesus is saying, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said. This is Jesus' invitation to these disciples as a Bible study. He's saying to them, you remember what the Torah said? You remember what the scriptures say? This is, he said, you have heard it said that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
In fact, there's three different times in the Old Testament scriptures that this law was given. It's called the law of limited retaliation, and in the Latin, it's lex talionis. It means you could only wrong somebody back to the extent in which they have wronged you. There's a really interesting study that was done where uh, two people would sit and they would put their thumbs on a table and they would take turns hitting it. I don't know who's signing up for these kinds of studies, but, uh, but they're, they're doing these studies. And, and interestingly, what happens is the person that's getting their, their, their thumb hit has a perception that, that what's happening to them is worse than what they are doing to the other person. And so what happens is this cycle of you've wronged me and I'm going to wrong you and I'm going to get, you, get back at you a little bit more than how you wronged me. Which sounds pretty good sometimes, doesn't it? I don't even want to get into some marriage counseling. We're going to talk about that uh, in the coming weeks. But, you know, there is a level of you wronged me and so now I'm going to wrong you. In the Old Testament scriptures, lex talionis, an eye for an eye, was actually a very gracious way of people interacting with each other. I'm only going to wrong you as much as you've wronged me. No more, no less. I'm just going to get even. And what Jesus points out, and interestingly, it's not that he disagrees with that. He just goes, that's a pretty low bar. Remember last week we said, you know, the, the bar of love, the low bar of love is let's not murder our neighbors. Let's not do that. But that's the lowest bar of love. Whereas here he's saying, listen, eye for an eye, I get all of that. That's a pretty low bar when it comes to how we're going to respond to people. But then he goes on and he says, but I tell you. So that's what you've been told. But I tell you, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. He invites us to this completely different way of interacting with people. These people that we perceive, and, and honestly, they might, they might perceive this as well to be against us. In fact, Paul in the book of Romans chapter 12 in 19, and 21, 19 through 21, he says it like this. Do not take the revenge, my dear friends, but leave room to God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, and this is one of the greatest uh, imagery of all of Scripture. In doing this, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. Uh, the, the phrase, killing them with kindness, comes ba based out of this context that you're going to do something so nice that they're just going to burn up. He said, do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the teaching of, of Jesus and the Apostle Paul here say you can either get even or you can have influence. You can either try to get revenge or you can have a massive impact in the people around you, but you can't have both. You, you can either have revenge or a gospel influence, but, but you can't have both. And so here these group of Jewish people are listening and they're, they're followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire, and how hard this must have been. I would argue probably about as hard as it is for us in the midst of the culture and the world that we live in today. And can we admit that this teaching of Jesus is radical teaching? This is contrary to what we've been taught our whole life. This is contrary to what, uh, what the world thinks 
that we, should, we do and should respond in. Our attitude towards people has to be tough-minded. You could say this, we refuse to allow the way that we're treated to determine the way that we respond. In the pre-service, I was saying, you know, it just seems like Jesus just keeps pressing the gas pedal down further and further and further. Just wait until we get into this stuff next week. It's like, just back off a little bit, Jesus. Like, we, you know, how, how do we do this? Jesus says, life in my kingdom is you do not have to repay evil with evil. That you could allow engagement with the people around you to replace justified retaliation. Instead of retaliating, even if you're right, what if you thought about it a little bit more? What if you took a, a step back and, and prayed about it and said, God, how would you have me interact and respond to this person? What might that look like? You know, the number one emotion that we're going to have to address in our life, if this is going to be the kind of people that, that we are, is we're going to have to address the issue of fear. Because there's something in us that, that there's a fear that crops up, right? Like, what's going to happen to me if, if I turn the other cheek? What's going to happen to me if I, I don't defend the truth, if I don't do this? And there's, there's such a fear that overcomes us. And, and, and I would just say, you know, uh, we have to address the issue of fear. We have to live in such freedom, in the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard uh, says it like this, this world with all its evil is actually perfectly good and safe for anyone to be, no matter the circumstances, if they have only placed their lives in the hands of Jesus and his Father. In other words, listen, as Christ followers, if we've surrendered our life to him, we can live without fear. That no matter what happens to us, God is with us. And if we're in the kingdom, we're free. We're free to go to Jesus and say, how would you have me respond in this situation? If you're thinking about what this might look like in our everyday life, it's a really great question. Jesus is really glad that you asked it. Here's what he says, and here's, he gives us four pictures, really great pictures. Pretty easy to understand, but a little bit nuanced. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them, the, the other cheek also. I used to read this. that it, If somebody just cold cocks you, you pick yourself back up and you're like, this side. That's not really what Jesus is talking about here. You have to understand the context of who he's speaking to. He's very specific. If, he says, if somebody slaps you on the which cheek? The right cheek, right? The right cheek. This is my right, your left, but this is your right, my left. But think about it. Just turn to somebody right where you're seated and we'll just practice this. So if you're going to slap somebody on the right cheek, what hand do you have to use? Your left hand, right? And, and in antiquity and in this time, there was this culture where your left hand wasn't used for things like writing and eating. It was used for some other things. 
Anybody care to guess what that is so I don't have to say? It was used for wiping. And so in a culture that is really a uh, kind of this, how do I say this, an honor-shame culture. In an honor-shame culture, it wasn't the clean hand that Jesus is referring to hitting them. And hear me when I say this. He's not talking about somebody who is, is being abused. He's talking about somebody who's being demeaned. He's talking about somebody who's socially getting pushed down and either slapped with the left hand or, or backhanded with the right hand as a child would have been. It was a way to insult somebody. And by the way, I'm not indicating that we should backhand our children. Typically, we would imagine that we would have two responses to this kind of reaction from somebody. One would be to slap them back. Or the other one would be to run away. Or if you were like me in high school, you slap them back. And because I was pretty quick, I could run away. It's a hit and run, a slap and run. Jesus is going as he has the last couple of weeks. He's saying there's a third way. There's always a third way with Jesus, isn't there? What if you look at the person who's dishonoring you and demeaning you? And what if you just turn the other cheek and say, you know what? Why don't you hit me with your right hand? And treat me like a man. Why don't you hit me with your right hand and treat me like a person? Because that's what I am. I'm actually a person. And Jesus is inviting us to a way of being this creative influence. Where now all of a sudden our vulnerability replaces revenge. When I feel like I need to defend myself, what happens is, is I lose my influence. So at work, when you feel like you need to defend yourself, when you feel like your honor has been violated and you need to get even in order to be right, Jesus would say, you could do that, but you're probably going to lose your influence. And isn't it better to influence the people around you than to just get even or paid back? Jesus would say that you now as an agent of his kingdom can look for strong creative ways to actually refuse to participate in the mutual ongoing hostility that is so rampant in our world today and so ineffective. Can we agree with that? Can we just agree with the fact that, that what's taking place in the back and the forth and the tit for the tad and the, and the, the demeaning of people is so ineffective it's not working for us. And Jesus invites his people to a different way. He says, what if you embrace a posture of vulnerability instead of revenge? The second picture he gives us, and he says, if anyone of you wants to sue you, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, just to give you a little dress code uh, understanding and context here. Uh, in biblical times, they would wear like a, a dress. They didn't really have underwear. They had a, like what would be called a dress, an overgarment. And then they would have a coat that would go over that. You've seen pictures enacted. You know, this is enacted in every Christmas play, right? They, they got the long dress and the coat. And what he's saying here is that uh, you have um, someone who 
uh, is suing you for the thing that's underneath your coat, but, but he's saying, what if you give them your coat as well? If that happens, what does that make you? Naked. You're naked and probably afraid. A poor person is being sued by a wealthy person for their underwear. And Jesus says, just go ahead and give them your coat. What would happen is everyone around you would go, you know, that person's naked. And Jesus is saying, what if you didn't let yourself cover up the wrongs that people are perpetuating against you? And Jesus is teaching this method of an impact where he's saying, listen, what if you valued your impact that you were having more than the comfort that you so dearly wanted? See, that jacket was also something that they'd use as a pillow to sleep on or use as a sleeping bag to cover them. See, impact replaces comfort. And if we think about this for a moment, we'll recognize that the people in our world who have had the greatest amount of impact across the world are people who have given up and sacrificed a little bit of comfort. People who are willing to have a hard conversation, people who are willing to take a financial risk. Take a look at Mother Teresa, someone who went in and had an enormous amount of impact with sacrifice of her comfort. These are the types of people who consistently throughout time have changed the world. What if we valued our impact over our comfort? What would that look like? What if we didn't allow our anxiety or fear to rule, but we were just to be free to step into places that God's called us to step into? Maybe we would start sponsoring a child in in Colombia. There's a sacrifice involved with the impact. Maybe it's serving down our kids' hall or being a part of our dream team. What if it's serving in a nonprofit and there's sacrifice of our time and, and, and all that goes with that, and, and yet there's an impact that's taking place? The, the next picture Jesus paints is, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you may know the context in this, but if you don't, uh, in this time, the Roman army would actually, it was by law, they would actually, uh, if they were carrying their, their armor and their equipment, they could go up to a Jewish person and they would say to them, I want you to carry my stuff. And by law, they were required, by the Roman law, they were required to get up, grab their stuff, and carry it. But they only had to carry it a mile. And interestingly, uh, in this context, think about it. You're with your family at Sabbath, and you know, you're having your pork chops, and your hum- no, not pork chops, you're having lamb chops, and your hummus. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden, a Roman soldier comes and says, I want you to carry my stuff, and it inconveniences you. It's frustrating, but you, you do it because you're required to do it. And what Jesus is saying is, he's saying to them, what would happen if you started to see people around you, not just as soldiers, but as sons and daughters of somebody? Not as people of the state of Rome, but as image bearers of God and as people having a ridiculously hard day. Instead of dehumanizing the people that are against us, what if as followers of Jesus, we started to have compassion on them? And isn't it easy for us to dehumanize people we don't like? Jesus says that if you look for ways to actually serve the people around you, even people who are inconvenient, 
Are we willing to go the extra mile? Are we willing to extend compassion? Maybe relationally, maybe financially. It's not a lot. Jesus isn't saying that you always have to do this. That's not the point. His point is you could if you wanted to. It's an option for you. Instead of bitterly biting your tongue because you really want to tell that soldier where to put that equipment, you take it another mile. Vulnerability replaces revenge. Impact replaces comfort. Compassion replaces inconvenience. And finally, Jesus says, give. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus uses an illustration of a story that every one of his listeners understood, and I think we do too. There's certain people in our life that are needy, aren't there? There's certain people in our life that always seem to be in a sort of place where they want something from us. And Jesus said, what if you looked at those people, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I make up stories in my mind of how people got to the place that they are at. They've made decisions that led them down a path of destruction or, you know, you, you encounter people along the way where they're looking for a handout or something. And we just are like, well, if they would just, and this is such a Texan thing, if they would just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know what that's called? Judgment. It's called judgment. Jesus is saying that we are prone to doing this. That when someone is needy, what if instead of judging and coming up with a story, what if we were just generous to them? It doesn't mean you have to give to every single person you see that's in need. It just means that your heart is now free from making up a story so that you can love the people with the spirit that says, I'm calling you to step into this moment with them. I've heard it explained that sometimes there are people in our lives that are called EGR people, extra grace people. You know some people like that, people in your life who, who need an extra amount of grace. If you don't, the reality is, is you are that person. Jesus is saying maybe it's a gift of food, maybe it's a gift of honesty or a gift of confrontation, or maybe sometimes it's money. He's saying you are free to look at the people right in front of you and see them as people. That's the freedom. So we're tough-minded. Our attitude's changed by the gospel. We don't just respond to people based on how they treat us. We actually respond to people based on how we've been treated by God. And the way that Jesus continues is it doesn't get any easier. He just continues to press the gas pedal. He says, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And ironically, you can find the command, love your neighbor, all throughout the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus 19. But you know what you cannot find? Hate your enemy. It's not there. But Jesus is addressing something with his disciples, something that an idea that's been perpetuated over the years, that if you love your neighbor, you must certainly hate your enemy. And yet that's never what God intended. So Jesus is picking up this particular teaching that's been popular in that day. And he says, I tell you, he says, you have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. You know what the number one factor for every person in this room, everyone watching online, that determines whether or not we like somebody? It's if they are like us. That's the number one factor. If we often surround ourselves with people who look like us, talk like us, act like us. You know why? Because we like us some us. Don't we? Everybody does. And Jesus is pushing against that. You could be like, you know, you could find out that Mother Teresa doesn't like you, and you'd be like, well, she's a little off. Jesus is pushing back against the mentality and saying, what if? What if you were not only tough-minded, but what if you were tender-hearted? What if you refused to allow your, your tribal allegiance to determine the extent of your love? What if you refuse to allow the lines that have been drawn in the sand, maybe the flag that you fly, the language that you speak, the color of skin that you have? What if we refuse to allow whatever tribe we're a part of to determine that's the extent of my love? And what Jesus is doing, he's looking at his followers and he's saying, as a follower of mine, as a disciple, as an apprentice of mine, you no longer get to determine and choose who you love. You love whoever is in front of you. That's the calling of the followers of the ways of Jesus. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you're like, I'm a Christ follower, this is who he is calling us to love, every person that's in front of us. We don't get to choose who we love. We get to choose how we love, but we don't get to choose who. And that word love is a slippery word, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we read it and there's all sorts of Greek in, uh, usage of the word love. And sometimes we hear it as romantic love. But in this case, it's the, word, it's the Greek word agape. And that means to wish and to will for someone's good. It has an action attached to it. You can't agape love somebody and not have it come out in the way that you treat them. To wish and to will for the good of another. Jesus says to his followers, and, and we have to hear this. You've never met someone that you were not called to love. In fact, your battle is not against flesh and blood. You've never met a person who's your enemy. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities of darkness, the enemy in this dark world, but it's not against people. I had this picture of what's going on in our world. I read about it, and maybe some of you have heard it, uh, but it's interesting. I didn't say it first service, but I figured you guys got nowhere to go. So uh, if, if you took a whole thing of fire ants, red fire ants, and put them in a jar, and you took a, a bunch of black carpenter ants and put them in a jar and you sealed it up, they would probably be all right for a little while. But if you shake the jar up, they're going to start fighting against each other and eventually killing one another. I just wonder, like, in our world today, who's shaking our jar? Anywho. <laughs> Jesus gives this great example of how we are to love 
every single person. He goes on and he says, I want you when it's raining outside, I want you to go outside of your house, stand in the middle of the street, I want you to look down the street, look up the street, and I, I want you to, you know, you probably, if you were to do this, if you, let's just put this into our context, stand in the middle, of, next, hopefully it rains again, next time you stand in the middle of the street and it's raining, look down, look up, uh, and you probably have some people on your street that are good people. Right, you have people who, maybe even followers of Jesus on your street. My guess is you've got that one jerk neighbor. Right? You've got that one jerk neighbor. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I want you, with all the training, go down to jerk neighbor's house. And I want you to look in his yard. I want you to tell me if the rain is falling on his yard. The answer is yes. He goes on to say, when the sun comes up, does the sun come up and shine on jerk neighbor's house? The answer is yes. What Jesus says is wired into the fabric and fiber of creation is the ridiculous generosity of God. Theologians call this a common grace. It's everywhere. It's over time so common that we miss it, but Jesus says, look around you. The sun rises, the rain comes, and it falls even on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a picture of the love of God on every person. And when he says, what he says is when you live in the way where you don't just love the people who are like you, but love the people who are opposed to you, you begin to look like him. You look like, a, to use a euphemism, a chip off the old block, you look like your father. Like your heavenly father. Because when we love radically, we become a reflection of our father. He gives us two practical ways, and I'll end with this. First, what if you prayed for your enemies? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says uh, in, in his book, Life Together, he makes this point. He says it's really hard to hate somebody that you pray for. Try it. Just see what happens. What if you looked for active, practical ways to bless those who persecute you? What if in light of this teaching today, you just said, Jesus, point out somebody who I disagree with or somebody, and it's not going to be that hard these days. Somebody who rubs, rubs me the wrong way and give me a vision for what it looks like to love them this week. And here's how he closes. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? That's ridiculous. That's easy to love people who love you. But what would it look like for us to love those who oppose us? He says, are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than other pagans do that? And then he says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I thought I'd leave you with some encouragement this morning. The Greek word is teleos for perfect. It means to fulfill or to make an appointed culmination. You could read it like this, mature. Just be mature. Be mature and grow into maturity. And what does Christian maturity look like? How do we measure maturity as a follower of Jesus? It's not based on how many Bible verses you recite, how many classes you attend, or, or, or based upon how much theology you have attained. Maturity as a follower of Jesus is based on one thing, and that one thing is how do we love the people that are in front of us? That's what Jesus is teaching. But first... The truth is, is we can only live in the kingdom if we know first that we have been loved by him. We have to understand that he is for us, not against us. That, that this 
list of how to live in this life is not some list just to make our life hard, but because he knows how much better our life will be. I want to end by just kind of pressing this onto us, and I, and I hope we feel the weight of this, because this is Jesus, our King who is speaking, who was on trial and was slapped, and what did he do? He turned the other cheek. They didn't just take his outer garment. They didn't just take his undergarment. They took everything that, they, that he owned. They stripped him bare. They humiliated, left him naked, had scornful words lobbed in his direction, and he hangs on the cross naked and exposed in order to declare that you are loved and you're forgiven. It's based on nothing that we have done, but based on everything that he has accomplished on our behalf. That This is not the king that just goes one extra mile. This is the king who actually carried his cross the entire way. Where he hangs and he dies and he gives generously. He doesn't look down on the people that have just crucified him. And instead, he shows forgiveness. He doesn't give them some pithy response like they need to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And if they were just a little bit more like me, they'd have it all together. He looks down on us in, in grace and generously loves his enemies. When we're the enemies of God, when we were the enemies of God, Christ loved and died for us, welcoming us as his children. It's that love when it sits on us that actually frees us, not just to admire the words of Jesus, not to just understand and know them, but to actually begin to live them out in this life that we live. God wants to develop us and mature us into followers of him. So I'm going to invite you to have one phrase in mind this week as you go throughout your day-to-day. Opposition is my opportunity. When I'm wronged, when somebody cuts me off, I'm blanco for the 4,000th time. At the grocery store, when somebody gets in line ahead of me, opposition is my opportunity. When I'm criticized, when somebody speaks negatively against me or maybe says something on Zoom that just drives me nuts, opposition is my opportunity. When I'm taken advantage of, when I'm not thanked, when I'm feel like I just got run over emotionally, opposition is my what? My opportunity. When I'm hated, not because of anything I've done, but because of who I am, opposition is my opportunity. Maybe in that opportunity we deliver a cup of cold water or a kind word. When your head and your heart are not consumed with hate, you are free to love, and to love anyone and everyone that's right there in front of us. Let's pray.